Hey guys, welcome back to One More Thing Podcast. This is Miranda. And I'm Maya. And here we are, two days away from Halloween. Um, here we are, another spooky episode ahead. Before we get started today, we just wanted to give a gentle reminder like you haven't seen it enough, but please go out and vote if you haven't already. Look at anywhere where you can go vote early or go vote on the actual voting day in November on November 3rd. <laughs> Had to check my calendar. <laughs> anyway, um, guys, it's super important to vote and, you know, let your voice be heard this year. We have a lot riding on this election. And yeah, thanks for listening and tuning in today. We're going to kick it off with a scary story. Last time I shared a scary novel. Um, wasn't very scary, <laughs> honestly. And I I blame Lissa. Not joking. <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely should have proofread the story before reading it. Um, but I will say this week, Maya has a good story because it is based off of real events. Um, everything's true. It's actually very creepy. I'm not really sure what's about to happen, but just know you are about to be spooked. Here's your warning. Um, I will say there is murder and violence. So if that is a trigger for you, um, maybe skip through. We'll be having a little debate later about our favorite Halloween candy. And you know, I will win as usual. So tune in for that as well. All right, Maya, let's hear this gruesome story you have to tell us today. Yeah, so like Miranda said, uh, trigger warning um, for murder, violence, um, children, (laughs) um, pretty much everything that you could put a trigger warning for, uh, this is the trigger warning for that. Uh, So really quickly, a disclaimer is I am... Um, a total true crime fanatic. I always have been. I like my earliest memories are when I was a very young child watching like Law and Order with my grandma and like staying up late and like hearing about all these horrible, like gruesome stories. And I've always been so fascinated by the psychology behind it um, because it's so foreign to me. Um, So uh, in no way is this meant to um, make light of anything that I'm about to talk about. Actually, it's kind of meant as the opposite. I picked this story um, because of the people who are involved. Um, The story I'm about to tell you is the story of the Atlanta child murders. It involves um, all black victims, black child victims, um, who were actually, um, spoiler alert, killed by a black man. And um, I think it's important to raise awareness about violence um, against black people in general, but especially when it comes to kids. And I think this is a really important story. It's one that's always stuck with me. Um, It's scary. It's chilling. Um, And I think it's um, pretty perfect for the season that we're in. So um, (laughs) prepare for a scare. Sit back and relax and listen to the story of the Atlanta child murders. So, the Atlanta child murders um, occurred between 1979 and 1981. Um, They're often called the Atlanta child murders because the victims were all children. They were a series of murders committed in Atlanta, Georgia, between July of 1979 and May of 1981. Over a two-year period, at least 28 children 
adolescents and um, a few adults were killed. So uh, kicking off with the first murder that happened in 1979, um, in the middle of 1979, um, Edward Teddy Hope Smith and Alfred Evans, who were both 14 years old, disappeared four days apart. Their bodies were found um, on July 28th in a wooded area. Smith um, was killed with a 22 caliber gunshot wound to his upper back. Um, and he is believed to be the first victim of the Atlanta child killer. The next victim was found on, on September 4th. He was 14-year-old Milton Harvey, who disappeared while he was on an errand to the bank for his mother. He was riding a yellow 10-speed bike and was found a week later in a remote area of Atlanta. And his body wasn't recovered until um, months later in November of that year. Um, on October 21st, a nine-year-old named Yusuf Bell went to the store to buy Bruton snuff for a neighbor, uh, Eula, at Reese's Grocery Store on McDaniel Street, and a witness said that she saw Yusuf near the intersection of McDaniel and Fulton getting into a blue car before he disappeared. His body was found on November 8th in the abandoned E.P. Johnson Elementary School um, by a janitor who was looking for a place to pee. Bell's body was found clothed in his brown cut-off shorts that he was last seen wearing and they did have a piece of masking tape stuck to them. He'd been hit over the head twice and his cause of death was strangulation. And Yusuf is important because people didn't necessarily connect Yusuf to the rest of the killings right away, um, just because his manner of death was uh, a little bit different. So those were all of the murders that took place in 1979. In 1980, 12 more children were murdered the following year, seven more bodies were discovered, um, and most of the children were killed via strangulation and asphyxiation, although several were bludgeoned to death and one child was shot to death. So, this was crazy. I mean, kids were disappearing yeah. all over Atlanta. Um, <clears throat> Atlanta has a pretty large uh, black population, and all of these kids kind of disappeared from black neighborhoods. Um, so it wasn't immediate, like the response to these murders wasn't immediate, which is why I think they were able to go on for so long. So on November 6th, 1980, the FBI opened, um, their first preliminary investigation into the case. Um, and this case has gained a lot of notoriety because it was actually featured on Mindhunter because... It was one of the first cases that FBI profilers actually worked on. So if you're familiar with the FBI and their behavioral analysis unit, um, it includes people who uh, profile serial killers. So think like criminal minds, that sort of thing. Um, they basically are like specially trained FBI agents who are really adept at like kind of uncovering like the psychology behind these killers, um, which is pivotal in helping to catch them. And this is one of the first cases um, that the FBI worked using that unit. Um, <clears throat> so FBI profiler Ray, Roy Hazelwood from the Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico flew to Atlanta in mid-1980 to consult on the murders. Um, and he was followed by another famous FBI profiler, John Douglas, who arrived in Atlanta in early January 1981 to develop a formal profile of the person responsible for the Atlanta child murders. 
these profiles were profilers were able to determine that they thought the serial killer was probably african-american it's really rare that a killer crosses racial boundaries um and it just goes to the access that this killer had to have to the kids so it basically they formed this opinion that um, a white person could not easily travel in black neighborhoods without creating a great deal of suspicion and that element was part of the profile despite the fact that a serial killer who was african-american would be unusual we know definitively fight me about this if you want but it's true the overwhelming and i mean overwhelming like in the high 90 percent um of known serial killers are white uh yes. african-american <laughs> yes yeah. an african-american serial killer is extremely rare um, but the FBI, through their investigation, was able to determine that it was most likely an African-American serial killer who was operating in Atlanta during these couple of years. Um, so they believe that the killer was of average or above average intelligence who presented himself as an authority figure. The killer probably had frequent changes in employment or was self-employed and able to follow media coverage of the murders closely. Um, so that brings us to... So at this point... The FBI is in town, right? Like, 1979, there's a whole string of murders. Um, I think there were, like, four in total. And at this point, the FBI is called in after number four. It took all of 1979, four black children to go missing, for the FBI to even be called in at all. Um, and at this point, now we're in 1980, right? So the FBI is in town, they're investigating, and the murders are happening while the FBI is still in town. So... The first one occurred on March 4th, 1980. The first female victim, 12-year-old Angel Lanier, disappeared. She left her house around 4 p.m. wearing a denim outfit and was last seen at a French house watching Stanford and Sons. Um, her body was found six days later in a wooded vacant lot, vacant lot wearing the same clothes that she had on when she left home. And a pair of this is very disturbing, spoiler alert. Um, a pair of white panties that did not belong to her were stuffed in her mouth and her hands were bound with an electrical cord. Her cause of death was strangulation. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, a week later, um, 11-year-old Jeffrey Mathis disappeared while he was on an errand for her, um, his mother. He was last seen wearing gray jogging pants, brown shoes, and a white and green shirt. And months later, a girl came forward and said that she saw him get into a blue car with a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man. Jeffrey's body was found um, 11 months after he disappeared. Uh, about two months later, on March, or sorry, on May 18th, 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks disappeared. He was last seen answering the telephone at home and then leaving in a hurry on his bicycle, taking a hammer, um, taking a hammer with him. Um, his body was found the following day next to his bicycle in the rear garage of an Atlanta bar. And that bar was located um, next door to what was then the Georgia Department um, of Offender Rehabilitation. His pockets were turned inside out. Um, his chest and arms had slight and shallow stab wounds. And his cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. And Eric Middlebrooks was a little bit different because weeks late, weeks before he disappeared, he had actually testified against three um, other juveniles in a robbery case. So at first it was seen as like retribution, but now his murder is attributed to the Atlanta child killer. On June 9th, 12-year-old Christopher Richardson went missing on his way to a local pool. 
Um, he was wearing blue shorts, a blue shirt, blue tennis shoes, and his body wasn't found until the following January, clothed in unfamiliar swim trunks along with the body of a later uh, victim, Earl Terrell. On June 22nd, seven-year-old Latoya, or sorry, Latanya Wilson disappeared from her parents' apartment. According to witnesses, she was appeared to have been abducted by two men, one of whom was seen climbing into the apartment window and then holding Wilson in his arms as he spoke to another man in the parking lot. Her body was found in a fenced-in area at the end of Verbena Street in Atlanta, and by then, another trigger warning, her body had been skeletonized, meaning she had almost fully decomposed by the time her body was found. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. If this is not sending chills down your spine, then you have no soul, I swear. (laughs) Um... I mean, these kids were so, so young. We're not even at the end of it. Like, this is the... It gets worse, guys. It gets worse. The next day, June 23rd, 10-year-old Aaron Weish um, disappeared after having been seen at a local grocery store getting into a blue Chevrolet um, with either one or two black men. Um, A female witness says that she saw Weish being led from the Tanner Corner Grocery by a six-foot-tall black male. Um, the witness's description of the car matched a description of a similar car impacted, implicated in the earlier Jeff- Jeffrey Mathis disappearance. In July of 1980, two more children, Anthony Carter and Errol, or, sorry, Errol, Earl Terrell, uh, were also murdered. Between August and November of 1980, five more killings took place. All of the victims were African-American between the ages of 7 and 14, and the majority of them were killed uh, via asphyxiation. And asphyxiation means that they were um, choked to death. Now, uh, at this point, like I said, um, the FBI is still in town. So all of those murders happened in 1980, and it wasn't... So remember, the... um, Right after 1979, at the very beginning of 1980, the FBI is in town. They're in town for all of 1980, and it's not until 1981, a full year later, That's crazy. Um, that they even found a suspect. So this guy, or potentially guys, based off of the descriptions that people were giving, had been roaming free, killing people at random, pretty much, um, for this whole time. It's very, very shocking it's very crazy yeah um like you've heard so far the majority of these victims were young black kids we're talking like seven years old it's a second grader you know just doing normal things like going to the grocery store going to a friend's house riding their bike um and they were literally just snatched off the street and literally never heard from again until their bodies were discovered kind of like disposed of uh, months later so the murders did continue into 1981 the first known victim in uh, 1981 was Luby Geeter. So I have actually uh, read quite a few articles um, and books and things about um, the Atlanta child murders. And Luby Geeter's, or Jeter, I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. If somebody knows, let me know. <laughs> His family um, has been very vocal. Um, a lot of the children who were killed in 1981 their families were extremely vocal because at this point you have to think like the people in atlanta are already on edge they know somebody is coming into their community they know somebody is a 
attacking their children, killing them, um, literally strangling them. Like they know that something is happening. And at this point, they're pretty outraged that it's been allowed to go on this long. Um, and they're frustrated. And so uh, Luby Jeter dying, um, or rather being abducted, was a big, big turning point in the case, in my opinion. So Luby Geter disappeared on January 3rd, and his body was found on February 5th. Geter's friend, Terry Pugh, went missing in January also. An anonymous caller actually called police to tell them where to find Terry Pugh's body. And Terry had lived in the same apartment as Eddie, Teddy Smith, who, if you'll remember, um, I just spoke about, he was killed in 1979. So not only was this guy like killing a bunch of kids, he was like double dipping. Like you would think if you're a murderer, you would like stay away, you know, like you already hit this (laughs) apartment complex. But no, this guy was like bold. He went back and he took another kid from the same apartment complex. So crazy. So bold. So messed up. Um, in February and March of 1981, six more bodies were discovered, believed to be linked to the previous homicides, and among the dead was the body of Eddie Duncan. And Eddie Duncan is important because he is the first adult victim of the Atlanta child murder. Um, in April, 20-year-old Larry Rogers and 28-year-old John Porter and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne were murdered. Potter, or sorry, Porter and Payne were ex-convicts and they had recently been released from um, Arendelle, which is a state prison, after serving time for burglary. On May 21st, the FBI agents found the body of 17-year-old uh, Billy Star Barrett uh, on a curb in a wooded area near his home. Uh, there was one witness, a 32-year-old custodian from a nearby high school who had run out of gas about a mile from the scene, and he described a black man standing over and observing the location where the body was found before driving away in a white over blue Cadillac. So if you'll remember, a blue car is like a pretty consistent thread throughout all of these stories. Right. You have to think like the FBI is in town at this point. You have a description of the car, a description of the guy or guys, plural, because I think that not all of these were one person who are doing this and still no arrests are made. Um, it is pretty shocking. It's truly wild. Um, but I will say that, um, at this point they kind of are, they kind of are getting closer. They're starting to narrow in. Um, and during the end of May, 1981, the last reported victim was added to the list. who was 27 year old Nathaniel Carter. And he was last seen by uh, a gardener at the entrance of a local theater in Atlanta, uh, reportedly holding hands with um, the prime suspect of the Atlanta child murders. Um, <gasps> it is really, truly crazy. So. That was a um, plot twist. It sure was. So let's talk about the uh, guy who was responsible for this his name is uh wayne williams and he is a true son of a gun man he is truly something um we don't have time today to get into all of the 
things and ways that he was able to, um, I guess, get in, get at these kids and kind of target them. But his strategies were chilling and they leave no doubt in my mind that this guy was a monster. So in late 1970, there was kind of a shift in the killer's MO and that led to a major break in the case. So the bodies of the victims, which until that point were found on dry land, began turning up in nearby rivers. And FBI profilers believed that the killer had caught on to the fact that the FBI was in town, right? He wanted to start washing away evidence. He didn't want to just leave these bodies out in open fields or behind um, establishments anymore. He wanted to make sh- it's called like a forensic countermeasure when you know, like somebody's going to be looking for evidence. So you try everything you can to make sure that they won't be able to find it. So he thought, OK, well, if I dump them in the water, then that'll wash away any trace of me and I'll be scot free, I guess. Um, and that happened the the victim started turning up in bodies of water after um, an Atlanta paper reported that the investigators found carpet fibers and dog hair on many of the victims bodies so he thought let me dump them in water all that stuff will wash away so um, one of the FBI special agents uh, decided or he suggested that they start canvassing the bridges along the rivers which led to stakeouts of dozens of bridges in the area um, and on one of these stakeouts, they were led to Wayne Williams, who was pulled over after Atlanta police officers heard a loud splash in the Chattahoochee River on the early morning of May 22nd. So it's my mom's birthday. Oh my gosh. Mine's May 20th. Sisters. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> besides the point. Okay. So Wayne Williams, 23 year old. 23-year-old dude. Think about how young that is. He was only 23? And this yeah. was, what year was this? Uh, this was in 1981. Wow, so he started killing at, like, at least 21, as far as we yeah, know. Like, 20. young. Like, young, That's young, disgusting. young. It's crazy. Um, it's, it's actually really shocking. Like, right now, I'm older than he was when he was caught for this. So, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Um, so he was, his station wagon, uh, was spotted on the bridge shortly after hearing that splash that I just talked about. And of course, Wayne Williams denies any involvement in the case. He claimed that he was a talent scout trying to find a singer named Cheryl Johnson, whose existence was never verified. He lied. Two days later, the body of 27-year-old Nathaniel Carter was found near the spot where Williams was pulled over. So I mentioned Nathaniel was the last victim of the Atlanta child murder. So two days after they found Wayne Williams, um, the asphyxiated body of 27-year-old Nathaniel Carter was found near the spot where Williams had pulled over and where the splash was heard. Um, And in June, the police linked those green fibers that I mentioned um, found in his house to another of the murders. So I mentioned before that he used these very like chilling and haunting ways of like getting kids to trust him. And one of the ways he did that was to pretend to be a music producer and a talent scout. And he would go to local um, malls or places that kids hung out. And he would uh, tell the kids that he was a talent scout and a music producer and a music promoter. And he was trying to find the next Michael Jackson. You have to remember this is the eighties. Michael Jackson was everything in right right you know more at the time so he would claim that he was trying to find the next michael jackson he would promise these kids that he could make them a star he'd give them their big break 
Um, and that's how he got to a lot of these kids. He And it wasn't just like he would tell it to them once. Like some of them he would talk to multiple times before he actually ever um, abducted them. So it's actually really, really creepy. It just kind of, in my mind, brings up that whole thing of like stranger danger, you know? Like your parents tell you not to trust people like that. And I don't think that that was really necessarily that big of a thing in the 80s. But... I mean, now this story blows my mind because if my mom ever caught me talking to some 23-year-old man at seven years old who was like a talent scout, she would be like, absolutely not. And I'm not, not to say that the parents like didn't do what they should have done or they were right. bad parents. It, just, it was a different time back then. Like different things were allowed. It was like okay to like be out for hours at a time and not check in with your parents and you kind of had a little bit more freedom than you do now and I, I feel like nowadays we have so much technology and there's a way to keep tabs on people all the time that just this story I couldn't see happening to this extent in the year 2020 but then again we know that law enforcement doesn't care about black people and they never <laughs> have so maybe I'm wrong I don't know yikes um Anyways, it's just very, very crazy. But so obviously they, they caught Williams, right? Like he's connected. They found all this physical evidence connecting him to a bunch of these murders. Um, and of course, he denied any connection to any of the murders. And he maintained his innocence through a closely watched trial that began in January of 1982. So this is where um, I get super, super, super interested in it because criminal law is something that I love and it's what I'm working in and what I'm working toward um doing i guess for the rest of my career um and so prosecutors built their case around a large number of fibers from williams's home and car including fibers from a trilobal yellow green carpet and a bedspread and a yellow blanket from williams's bedroom and dog hairs from the family's mixed breed german shepherd so i mentioned earlier that there were fibers and hairs found on some of the bodies before that um article was pu- was published and all of those fibers and all of those hairs matched not only like the blankets and duvets and things in this man's house, but the hairs matched his dog. Like, come on, you yeah. know, like that's not a coincidence. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it's wild. Um, so 19 different sources of fibers and hairs were matched to the fibers on the number of victims. However, pres- uh, despite presenting evidence from the other killings, Williams was only charged with the murders of Carter and Payne. His trial ended with a conviction in February of February 27th, and Williams was sentenced to two consecutive life prison life prison sentence, sentences. Um, and soon after, investigators attributed Williams to the vast majority of the unsolved murders. Um, but the controversy was just beginning. I encourage you guys to read more about this case. It's really, really, really wild. I honestly, it's like something new every day is being. Um, I discovered about this case. Um, there's a really good podcast called uh, I think Atlanta Monster that you can listen to when you're not listening to our podcast, of course. And um, it's really crazy. I think a lot of people are saying that yeah, he totally did kill Carter and Payne, but the FBI was just lazy and they attributed all the rest of the murders to um, to Wayne Williams just because they didn't want to look into it any further. 
And so there's two camps of people. There are people who believe that he kind of did everything, and there are people who believe that somebody else was involved and that he wasn't necessarily responsible for all of the murders, but the FBI was just too lazy to figure that out. And remember that a lot of the eyewitness statements um, in the beginning when these kids were disappearing mentioned not one black man, but two. True. And um, it's just one of those things. Like, Wayne Williams still to this day claims that he... um, He's still alive? I guess he's only like forty. Yeah, he claims 60. that he like wasn't. Yeah, he claims that he, um, that he, he, you know, he's innocent. He didn't do it. Um, and no other suspect has ever been charged for any of the Atlanta child murders. And what's crazy is that Carter and Payne were two of the adult victims, not right. the child. So no one has technically been convicted for killing these innocent children. I mean, that's wild. Attribute it to Wayne Williams, but I mean, no one has ever been fully brought to justice for killing these kids. He remains in prison to this day, um, and a handful of the cases have actually been uh, reopened. Um, so, actually, uh, very recently in March of, I want to say, 2018. The mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is amazing. She's incredible. Um, she announced that she and the Atlanta police chief um, were going to retest evidence in the case. And they were decided they were going to look into other cases from that era that could be related. So, I mean, I think there are people who are trying to diligently figure out if Wayne Williams is truly the only Atlanta monster. But for now, it kind of remains unsolved and that is the story of wayne williams and the atlanta child murders i got my information from wikipedia vulture um and L, as well as atlanta monster the podcast so yeah if that doesn't have you shaking oh, i am shaking it's crazy. <laughs> it is it's crazy yeah i think the craziest part is that they really haven't technically that they know found like the real murder of those kids. And it's also weird too, like just to think of like those parents, like how did they find closure, you know, like constantly like waiting and waiting. And I'm sure like some of them probably had other kids. And so like, how do those kids feel? There's just so many questions I have. It's it's really, it's sad. And especially anytime, like, kids are involved i mean it's never good when anyone gets murdered but to hear about like a seven-year-old or something it's it's messed up it's dark it's truly chilling and haunting and it's just like how how does somebody do that you know like how do you and it's not i mean it's not like you do it once you do it over and over and over and like you don't stop until you're caught you know mm-hmm. and it's worth mentioning that um for, from what we can tell for the most part from the information that's been released the child murders stopped after wayne williams was captured you know and it, that could be a situation of well wayne williams was actually the murderer so that's why the murder stopped or whoever was doing the murders thought this was their perfect you know yeah get out, get out of jail free card you know they were like all right i better not murder anybody else right. because they think they caught the guy who did it so but they could have yeah and they, that's the thing they could have moved and there's tons and tons of like different reddit threads and conspiracy theories out there that like 
about who who else was responsible for these murders, where else this murder could have moved because there are similar um, murders all around the country. Um, it just goes to show that like, you gotta keep a close eye on- <laughs> Moral of the story, your, watch your, your surroundings. <laughs> watch your kids, watch your back. Hide your kids, hide your wife. <laughs> Literally, hide your kids, hide your wives. Cause- they getting everybody up out here. Like it's, I mean, it's really crazy. So, um, obviously, um, as a podcast, our like thoughts and you know prayers are with the families that are affected by this. It's so difficult. I can't even imagine. This is not a true crime podcast. I, as much as I wish it was, um, I could not so, handle that. <laughs> so, if there are details that I got wrong or things that I missed. Um, chalk it up to the game because i didn't claim to be a true crime podcast i just planned i was gonna tell you a scary story which i think i did it's scary it's horrifying so i really do encourage you guys though to look into this um it's a truly fascinating case if you're interested in psychology if you're interested in criminal law at all it is truly fascinating the fbi has an entire archive on their website dedicated to just this case um, it's gained a lot of notoriety in the last couple years, but it kind of is one of those that's like solved question mark. And those to me are very fascinating. So, um, definitely look into it. Let us know, uh, if you find anything worth sharing about it. And that was your spooky, ooky, ooky story to close out, um, our October episodes. I hope you were scared, more scared than that shitty Alexa story last week. I hope you got a chill. I hope you got a shock or a fright. Um, Because that's honestly what we're here for at the end of the day. I just can't believe you just said spooky ooky. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) 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 On to the next part and the best part of the podcast. We are going to debate um, our top Two, or you know, I might have an honorable mention here. Our top Halloween candy we loved getting while trick or treating. I mean, everyone likes a full size candy bar, but like Maya, I want to hear like what were your favorite candies to get when you were trick or treating? And I just want to hear how gross they are because I know I will disagree. So let's hear. Let's hear. That's so rude. First of all, I will say. Listen, there's levels to this, right? Like Halloween is not just a one size fits all. We have a different experience every time. It's it's not just like a one one and done kind of situation, okay? So I have multiple favorites. I love chocolate. I don't care. Like it's delicious and as a kid, I always had like a really big sweet tooth. And I remember trading my brother and sister for like all of like my favorite candies when I was younger. And I sometimes if they wouldn't trade me, I would take them by force because honestly, that's You're what you do. You could call it bullying or you could call it getting what you want in the world and standing up for what's right. So my favorite candies of, of all time of Halloween are as follows. In the number one spot, we have Babe Ruth's coming in hot. Let me tell you, that is a nougaty, nutty, chocolatey, caramely bite of deliciousness. I honestly can say that I've never in my life ever purchased a Babe Ruth. I've, I've only ever 
received them during Halloween. And that's because specifically the fun size ones are the best, definitively. I like truly like I've had a full size Babe Ruth. Disgusting. No need for that. It's too much. But a but like literally the fun size Babe Ruth is the perfect bite. It's like sweet, salty, chewy. Oh, it's just chocolatey. Like it's literally a perfect candy bar. And if it ever gets discontinued, we're going to have problems that I'll have to talk to my therapist about because it's so good. I honestly like you, I mean, Snickers who? I don't know her, you know, like Snickers is trash and everyone who has ever tasted a Babe Ruth knows it. So what's your number one, Miranda? Um, First of all, I had to like Google, like what's in a Babe Ruth because I don't touch those, never had that, never, never tasted that, never desired that. I'm good. <laughs> also, the fact that you said sugary, nuggety, like adding a Y to the end doesn't make it sound more desirable. Let's just put that in there, first of all. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> no, no, you did not sell me. Um, my number one is a crunch bar. And here, no, 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 no. You know, like milk chocolate is all fine, whatever. I just feel like it's boring and it's bland. But with the crunch bar, it's exactly what you need. Just that little, little, little pop of crunch every bite you get. Just adds a little excitement to your chocolate bar. (laughs) That's the most boring chocolate bar there is. That's what's crazy. Hershey's is more boring than that. Absolutely not. I think a crunch bar is definitively more boring. You couldn't get a more homogenous bite. It's disgusting. No, I think it's I think it's great. And if you're in the movie theater, they have those little crunch balls. And those are really good. And they also have crunch ice cream. Don't get me started. I can go on and on. But there's just something about like little Rice Krispie treats in chocolate that makes it better. Especially this is great for the people who are allergic to nuts, but you can still enjoy a little pop in your chocolate. No, don't do that. Don't ostracize the nut lovers from the non-nut lovers. We're all it's I all said, love. Oh, here. I said oh, allergies. This is for the people with allergies. They can't enjoy every chocolate like some people, Maya. Just know that if you have a nut allergy, you are welcome here. <laughs> rolls eyes anyway let's just hear your second one because i'm not convinced and please don't say any of this sugary buttery like that's not it come on okay my okay my second favorite is the 100 grand bar and that's like honestly an ode to my childhood it actually was one of the first candy bars that I ever remember like eating when I was a kid for whatever reason and my grandma I remember my grandma eating them for whatever reason and I don't know where she got them or why but it is so good and let's first of all talk about the benefits of the 100 grand because it is low in cholesterol and low in sodium we love that it's basically a health bar and i will say miranda that the 100 grand bar is very similar to your crunch bar but it's just elevated so basically it's like a candy it's like a crunch it's like a crunch bar but filled with caramel pretty much and it's just so delightful. The only ingredients are chocolate caramel and crispy rice. So I think, like, why would you ever want a crunch bar when you could have a 100 grand bar? Like, it's ridiculous. They're so, so good. I just think, like, the crunch, 
like of biting and it's like mostly crispy rice so the crunch of biting into like that, that was shell, my last point <laughs> no it's no it's not the same the crunch of biting into that shell into that soft chewy caramel like the caramel pull is insane no matter what there is some consistency in their design and in their manufacturing because i've never had a bad 100 gram bar they are delicious. Again, I don't think I would ever eat a full-size candy bar. Maybe I just don't like full-size candy bars, but I feel like the mini size is the another perfect bite. You've got that chocolate that's not too sweet, tons of crispy rice, and that creamy, like, ugh, just delicious, sweet, pulley caramel. Like, ugh, it's 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 the best. And I'm like salivating thinking about one right now. You get a point off because you said pulley caramel, and I said none more of that why crap. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay, I will admit I have eaten 100 grand bars, but only in desperate times when I've ran out of crunch bars. So Desperate times? You should be so lucky! (laughs) No, it's just the caramel is just too much for me, too much. But maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm bland in that way. Moving on, you know, I wanted to talk about runts, but you know, I only liked one flavor in once, and that was the pink one, the little heart shaped one, because it was strawberry flavor. And it kind of gives you like the nerds, pink nerds taste, but like bigger and crunchier. But you know what? I, I changed my favorite candy. I was a really big fan of fun dip. Fun dip. That is the scariest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Like, the kids who used to, like, Fun Dip are all serial killers now. I think the Atlanta child murderer probably liked Fun Dip. That is horrific. You can't be serious about that. Yes, because it was just... Okay, so if you guys don't know, Fun Dip is literally just this packet of, like, different colored powder. I loved the blue one. It was, like... Uh, Raz, it says Raz Apple Magic Dip. So basically... It's not just powder, Miranda. It's literally sugar. <laughs> That's so nasty. Okay, it was powdered sugar that changed colors and had like different fruity flavors. Tell them about the sticks. <laughs> okay, the sticks sucked. <laughs> I was that weird kid who definitely licked my finger and stuck my finger oh, in there. Oh, God. <laughs> this is getting more miserable by the minute. I definitely just licked the sugar off my finger. And then when times got desperate, I would just pour the bag of sugar into my mouth. love yourself oh my god wait let me ask you this were you a kid that liked pixie sticks heck yeah the blue one yeah you're one of those psychos i i used to know those kids growing up snort them though i didn't snort them. (laughs) oh well that's where she draws the line guys she doesn't snort sugar but she'll eat it by the handful i used to know those kids and the kids who like pixie sticks and the kids who liked um fun dip they were the ones that you stay away from they're the kids you don't play with on the playground because they're always on some shit those are the kids that are on like ritalin now because they got so used to the high (laughs) you know that might explain why i didn't have many friends growing up (laughs) i'm joking (laughs) anyway you know maya to each their own i get it you're a chocolate fan whatever that's great but I will say, like, there's just something about being a child and being able to eat a bunch of powdered sugar and, like, not have a care in the world. Like, would I do that today? Occasionally. But in, <laughs> in hiding. <laughs> in secret. <laughs> I'm imagining you, like, 
under the covers of the flashlight, like shoveling like powdered sugar into your face, trying to relive your childhood. And it's such a scare. That is that's the real scary story of the night. <laughs> Literally, you know, I I don't remember the last time I had a fun dip, but I can say every time I've had it, I have left definitely feeling like a better person. Um, so you guys comment on our Instagram. Let us know like what's your favorite Halloween candy. What do you miss? What what do they do? They even like make every Halloween candy we use. Do they even make runts anymore? That's a good question. Also, if you eat banana runts, please I will block you. Let me know who you are now. You are a sick type of person if you eat banana flavored any type of candy. <laughs> any type of candy. Known. <laughs> Banana Laffy Taffy, please go away. Please. Um, but yeah, thanks guys for listening. Follow us on our Instagram at One More Thing Pod, and we'll see you guys next time. Um, tell us what we should debate next because we're kind of running out of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Later. <laughs>